Our sponsor today is GAPS. GAPS brings water remediation and soil amendments to the agricultural businesses of Ontario, Canada. Phosphorus runoff is a big deal. This company coordinates and facilitates grant-based projects that are built to test new phosphorus removal products on an ongoing basis. GAPS provides these successful R&D products in their toolbox of solutions and are sold to the producer, golf course, and municipalities. Their goal is to help build better soil and to manage water without the use of chemicals. Visit GAPS at gapsontario.com or visit their link in the show notes. Hi, and welcome to the North American Egg Spotlight. I'm Chrissy Wozniak. My guest today is founder of both Biomass Solution and Biorestorative Ideas. From Middletown, Wisconsin, I'd like to welcome Jacek Milewski. Welcome, Jacek, and thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Christian. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So can you first tell me a bit about your background and your experience, um, especially as it pertains to the agriculture industry? Sure. So, um, you know, first of all, I am not... Um, I, I was I wasn't brought up as a farmer. Or I'm not a farmer. I'm um, I'm more of a city person. However, my my, uh, my heritage I'm 100% Polish uh, goes back to farming, not in not too distant past. So, you know, even the years that I spent, uh, you know, being being young in Poland, I used to go to the you know to my grandparents' farm, and they had all kinds of you know uh, activities going on there, um, etc. But anyway, to um, accelerate that a little bit. I, I was actually fortunate enough to be brought up on uh, four different continents. My parents were in the diplomatic corps. So I ended up being in uh, Africa at the age of three, and then in Japan at the age of seven. And then after that, in a little bit in Poland, and then uh, got my undergraduate degree in the UK, in London, and uh, moved over to the United States. Yeah, it's been quite a while now. It's been almost... Uh, you know, it's almost uh, 31 years now uh, right. ago for good. And uh, that was really with uh, with a job after I graduated. So I'm a chem- chemical engineer by profession, exposed to a lot of different uh, cultures, exposed to a lot of different uh, circumstances growing up. And now fast forward to today, I've been in um, renewable energy, renewable uh, activities, and then now moved into sustainable uh, as well as restorative or regenerative activities, especially in the last um, couple of years. And just one other thing to mention too, that I was the idea given a developer behind a plant that got uh, built in Grand Forks, North Dakota, that's got the lowest uh, uh, of one of the lowest carbon intensity scores. So carbon impact from waste, agricultural waste to ethanol, that is so, that ethanol is now sold into California and other low carbon markets. So really? that, that plant got started up about 18 months ago. And uh, now, you know, since that plant started up, we're not, we're not really involved operationally in the plant anymore. Um, but uh, I kind of refocused on, um, on restorative and decarbonization activities, which really, really accelerated here in uh, 2021, not just in the U.S. and uh, North America, but also in Europe and in Asia. Right. Yeah. So I guess with your experience growing up on so many continents, how is your worldview different or how is it how has it been molded to really think about the whole globe? That's what I'm assuming, right? Rather than yep, just yep. the area so, you're from. So, so, yeah, thank you for that question, because it has been molded in such a way that I, I, I don't have any... Uh, pers- on personal level, any issues with seeing how 
everything that we do as humans and also as nature is completely connected. And it's all really the same part of this whole little small ecosystem that we live on, which is we call Earth and the Earth atmosphere. So, you know, to me, just uh, implementing um, uh, a, a solution or decarbonization solution uh, is really, um, you know, really cuts across any kind of a border because I, you know, I was exposed to so many different cultures. I, uh, I, I, I was fortunate enough to speak four languages at the age of seven. So, you know, I had really no choice. You know, this is, this is it, you know, this is my normal reality growing up. Um, and I can, you know, I can see that now being, um, being pretty important for all of humans, you know, like when we're dealing with decarbonization or carbon dioxide, CO2 does not know any borders that does not know any, you know, any gender, religion or anything. It doesn't really care. It's just there. Right. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, a, a big problem that we have to take care of and we should, you know, take care of it, cut, cutting through any kind of divisions that we might have as humans, you know, and, and just following uh, what's going on worldwide with a lot of uh, a lot more information and a lot of uh, different types of interpretation of information, it's very easy to get drawn into camps and to get drawn into a certain way of thinking this way or that way. I mean, in the end, there's only like you know, there's only one one Earth, and uh, there's only really uh, one um, uh, you know, primarily one truth or one uh, set of facts. And, you know, I think we should all, you know, accept that that's what it is. And, you know, let really um, subject matter experts or scientists or, or folks that actually know and study these type of things, uh, you know, have a have a uh, little bit of a louder voice. Because I feel like that's not being yet quite heard. So, yeah. So if we break it down uh, right to the basics, can you explain what? carbon reduction credits are and how that relates, especially to agriculture. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm really operating, uh, right around a process called pyrolysis. Um, okay. and I, and I've, uh, first got exposed to pyrolysis back in 2005. You know, myself being a, a chemical engineer, I studied it at college, but I probably didn't retain much of it or didn't even know what it meant when you're at college. Right. So, uh, in 2005, I, um, I, I, I started going to um, I, I, Iowa State University and uh, started collaborating a little bit or at least talking to some uh, scientists over there that were really involved in turning agricultural waste in the Midwest, the U.S. Midwest, uh, such as uh, corn stover or, or other uh, byproducts of you know, heavy corn production uh, region mm -hmm. into what's called biochar through this process called pyrolysis, which means, you know, you basically heat up uh, the biomass and uh, you don't burn it, you don't um, combust it, but you you fix the carbon by the process of heating. You kind of like concentrate the carbon in this final product that's called biochar. It looks like uh, charcoal or it looks like, uh, you know, very, very dark substance, black substance but it really has completely different characteristics. So how that relates to carbon dioxide. Um, on a short cycle, you know, any plant or any crop would take, um, uh, you know, would use carbon dioxide as part of the process of growing and photosynthesis. So it actually uses airborne CO2 as part of what the plant is exposed to. 
And then it puts that as, you know, it converts that through photosynthesis into biomass and into the root system and into the overall, uh, you know, viability of that actual crop or a plant. And then what we would do with pyrolysis is we would take, you know, preferably the residue of any kind of a production, let's say a crop production, um, whether it be whether it be corn or whether it be even sugar beets, or it could be um, it could be it could be wood, it could be woody biomass, you know, anything that has biological um, origin. And by this whole by this process called pyrolysis or thermal conversion, we basically fix that CO two that the plant used, and we fix it in a form of carbon. It's called a fixed carbon or recalcitrant, a non-reactive carbon. And then that product, the biochar, could then be used in many, many applications, one of the main ones being soil amendment. So part of the um, a mix of, uh, of, uh, of soil amendment, let's say you've got uh, composted uh, manure, or let's say you've got composted uh, you know, byproduct of agricultural um, uh, origin, and you would add some biochar to that, and then you would apply it to your soil. And because that carbon in the biochar is so fixed and so stable, it has the ability to help to rebuild carbon under, you know, underground in the soil. Right. So it, it starts build, it starts acting like a building block. In fact, um, there was a pretty recent study uh, that uh, that showed in with one biochar application in a certain type of soil. Um, the amount of organic carbon underground in six years actually doubled without any further additions of the biochar because there was a better, um, I guess, uh, agriculture uh, architecture or um, communication going on un underneath the soil in terms of nutrients, in terms of any uh, microorganism, in, in terms of any other activity. And uh, the roots and other uh, parts of the plant that would then die off would then uh, be incorporated into that whole, um, uh, you know, carbon architecture under the soil, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, help to rebuild um, carbon. So the simple way to think about that is with pyrolysis, we take the CO2 in the air, mm -hmm. we decarbonize the air, and then we recarbonize the soil. So we return it back to where it should really be. Because you know we're we're intensely decarbonizing, not just in North America but worldwide, and it's a and it's a huge problem that doesn't get any press these days. Unless you're in this, you're you're in that space, hardly anybody talks about soil decarbonization or soil you know extinct or soil extinction. And uh, at the current rate of depletion, that's really you know that's really going to be the result if we don't change our ways. So pyrolysis and biochar you know, basically puts a stop in that and fixes the, you know, um, uh, sequestration issue for CO2 in the atmosphere and helps to rebuild soil carbon. So hopefully that, that makes yeah, a little bit of sense. For sure. And then how does it relate to farmers and um, carbon credits? Okay. So for the carbon credits, so mm -hmm. depending where you are, uh, uh, you know, in, in the world, but if you're a producer of biochar, Let's say you got some waste um, on the farm and you were able to have this machine called the pyrolyzer and produce biochar. You can actually get uh, into the market of uh, biochar-based carbon credits. There are a number of companies worldwide doing this. Some of the primary ones are Puro.Earth out of Finland and uh, 
um, uh, and uh, carbon futures, um, you know, in uh, out of Germany, and then there are other exchanges developing for that. So there is a really robust and underserved market. So there is a lot more demand than there is actually available credits based on biochar sequestration mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the producer can monetize. Now, when it comes to the farmer, um, the farmer in the United States can uh, uh, can tap into the uh, a, a practice that's called the USDA NRCS 808 practice, which allows the federal payments to be applied to a particular farmer if they incorporate biochar in their overall farming practice. And there are some other caveats to this. Ideally, you want to start moving away from a full till to a partial till or no till practice and some other practices around the farm. But that's a federal program uh, in the United States. Right now, it's a practice, but it's in the comment. It's about to go into the comment process for, being, for becoming a national standard or becoming a permanent standard in the United States. Now, in Canada, I apologize, but I do not know of such a program. Um, and, um, you know, perhaps you, you do. But I'm sure uh, both of the both of both Canada and United States are pretty tied in a lot of the ways that we do things. So I'm sure there is something very similar uh, that happens in Canada. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't know at a, a deep level, but I know both governments are definitely pushing forward to try to um, to reduce that. Yeah, and then you know what, the other advantage that the farmer would have would, would which would be not a direct payment for implementing this, mm -hmm. but perhaps uh, lowering of their operating costs would be to um, to start uh, incorporating biochar as part of their uh, normal practice and as part of their, uh, you know, uh, strategy for crop rotation, etc. So with time, the uh, in vast majority of cases, the farmer would actually see a reduced need for uh, synthetic fertilizer use. Mm -hmm. And they would also see that their water balance is improved because biochar through its really high surface area and the ability to hold water helps with the water balance on the uh, on the farm itself. And in situations when you might get into a long spell of really hot weather, it provides you an extra insurance against drought. So drought mm -hmm. protection is a big deal. So those are things that are right now seen, but they're not really uh, defined in a monetizable way because every farm is going to be different, every soil is going to be different, and practice is going to be different. So it's a much more of a complex thing. But there's a, a whole bunch of uh, a pull-through advantages associated with this as well. Right. Yeah. And I've also heard that um, biochar will hold nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and reduce the runoff into the water. And is that true? That is true. That's a really exciting application, and we're actually looking um, into that. Uh, I'm I'm part of a um, a, a subject uh, matter expert slash contributor to a to a, um, a program in Wisconsin. I'm I'm in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. called the uh, Agriculture Carbon Energy Water um, Program, and biochar now is in the in the comment section as up, up, applicable to this particular program, and this especially. Mm -hmm. Um, true for dairy production, huge thing in Wisconsin, right? You know, we're cheeseheads over here. Yeah, for so, sure. <laughs> and and, the, and any kind of uh, runoffs or any kind of manure that's associated with that production, and that includes, as you say, the runoff issues, which mm -hmm. are you know, which are absolutely a, a, a gigantic issue. And in a lot of cases, even if uh, 
if a farmer, if a dairy farmer wanted to increase their production and if they wanted to be uh, regenerative, so they put a digester, they make renewable natural gas, they offset natural gas, et cetera, they might be limited by the permit because of the actual runoff limitations, right? So if they can capture uh, especially phosphorus nitrogen and return that phosphorus nitrogen and then have that you know, nutrient work in a much more efficient way or have a much better selectivity because it's held within the biochar in the soil much better, mm-hmm. that will allow that farmer to potentially increase their production. So it has, again, a ripple effect. So I looked at biochar and how it could be applied in a farm in this, you know, circular economy is a very well used term, but I look at circles within circles. So this is a multiple circular economy because you you get a feedback loop and feedback advantages as you're moving through this whole process. Right. Yeah. So what is the process um, that you would go through, you know, for example, with a farmer to identify and solve issues on the farm? Sure. So how so, do they know they need this, I guess, is, a, is the base question. Well, I, I would start with some questions around uh, whether the farmer is actually, um, uh, you know, whether financially and, and, and practice-wise the farmer is in a really good spot or whether, you know, the farmer is seeing maybe higher commodity prices, but the input prices are killing any kind of a, uh, profit margin that they can make on a higher commodity prices, mm-hmm. right? So just look at where those two curves are running for the farmer and where they really want to go with that. And then I would also, you know, look at, you know, a size of the farm and then what kind of a, a soil, what kind of crops the farmer is actually uh, farming. Uh, because, you know, biochar is going to be more most effective on soils that are, um that are substandard, that are maybe somewhat depleted, that are maybe uh, a little sandy, and where you have the bigger opportunity of rebuilding carbon right off the bat. You get a better, you get a better immediate effect. I'm talking about immediate. I'm talking about a year or two, right? Uh, whereas a long-term effect would be, you know, multi-year. And and then I would also see if the far, what kind of size of operation the farmer has, and if they're generating enough um, residue or byproduct or something thing that does not uh, interfere with the viability of their soil as it is and if they have it you know left over to see if there's an opportunity to even um, construct a small project and start having the farmer take advantage of making the biochar right on the farm itself right because yeah, there's something option. yes because something to be said about leaving a lot of the crop residue behind on the soil you, you don't want to remove all of it but you want to also, uh, you don't want to leave too much of it on there. Mm-hmm. So you got to strike that happy balance, right? Because you know it would be very unhealthy to completely remove all the residue, and mm-hmm. then you you're kind of uh, reversing the good that you're trying to do anyway. So those would be some of the main drivers, and then obviously a willingness uh, of the farmer to maybe um, maybe set on this path. And there's plenty of examples. Uh, throughout North America, of farmers that have done that and they're very successful. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know, even even making a connection for that particular farmer to talk to a peer farmer somewhere else that went through that journey, mm-hmm. because you know, at the beginning of of our of our conversation, I said, I'm I'm not a farmer. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not going to be the I'm not going to be somebody who could relate to that fully because I I don't live that world. But if you have a farmer talk to another farmer 
yeah. uh, then it's much more powerful because it, then, you know, then, then you have a really frank conversation, right? right. So, yeah, that's important. And so what do you think in your opinion, what are the, the biggest issues that modern agriculture faces today? Well, I, I think the biggest issues, and this is more, you know, maybe North American centric, I think is, is, you know, the continued, um, industrialization or um how would i say this basically based on an issue that we have with um climate change but also soil carbon Mm -hmm. and climate change would affect how quickly the soil carbon gets depleted and then we're trying to i think deal with the agriculture like we would with a human being that has some kind of an illness or disease and they just go and get a pill rather than dealing with the symptom, you know, with what caused that in the first place. And we have a tendency to say, well, if that's the issue, I know so-and-so and and we're going to just throw this at it, right? And we'll solve that issue without looking at the whole system. So I think, you know, rebuilding carbon and rethinking how the farming is done more, maybe into more of a uh, permacultural or maybe more sustainable practices is probably a good way to go. So I think the government, or the, whether it be federal or whether it be state or province government, has a really big role to play in that to maybe shield some of the farmers that choose to go that way. Right. Because there could be a dip initially as they're trying to readjust. And not every farmer is going to be able to, you know, to bear that dip. But I think the main issues are, you know, obviously the climate change, which is an issue for all of us, and then decarbonization and then over-industrialization of the, uh, of the farming. And that, that has ripple effects, in my mind, on, um, on nutrition, on how we eat, right? How uh, health of, um, you know, a population is, uh, is, is steadily, but, you know, it's not really getting much better. It's, it's maybe getting into more calories or more inputs, but they're less nutrient rich. Mm-hmm. They're, they're depleted, right? So you have to be really, um, you have to really look for uh, really good calories uh, in terms of, you know, your nutrition. So just changing those practices could also have a ripple effect on, you know, on the human population and animal population. So it's a, it's a whole big circle that I think we have to deal with. And I think it's a, it's a huge problem, but with huge problem come huge opportunities to do solutions as well. Right. So right. that's where Great we're at. Point. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So coming into 2022, what do you think we should be focused on, whether we're producers or end consumers um, in industry? Well, I, yeah, I think, you know, and with, with a little bit of a bias, but, but, you know, the program that I'm involved with in uh, in Wisconsin, you know, big part of that program is also establishing carbon accounting, full full set of carbon accounting mm-hmm. uh, practices for the farmer. Because I, I see as a consumer of the farming product, the end consumer, um, the type of a population and the age group of the population that's really receptive to having a full visibility on where that product comes from, what carbon impact does it have, et cetera, is growing. These are the, these are the people in their, you know, in their uh, 20s, 30s, maybe into early 40s that, are, that have been exposed to a lot more information relating to that as well. So if the farmer can um, engage on carbon accounting for the product, 
uh, and get the, that all the way to the to the consumer, then the farmer can actually be helped in changing their practice to more sustainable, organic, permacultural, you know, better farming practices, and, and then get paid for it. Because with carbon accounting, you can say, hey, you know, I'm making a product, but that product is actually made in such a way. I'm taking care of my the water, I'm taking care of the, the waste, the runoffs, I'm you know, using less energy to produce the product. I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention to everything associated with that whole carbon accounting, um, uh, you know, uh, activity. And there's, there's quite a few companies that we're involved with. We're also getting involved with that a little bit is, you know, that do full blown uh, LCA life cycle analysis of a particular product. And that's part of also the Wisconsin program that we're engaged in right now. So we're hoping to, implemented and it looks you know if fingers crossed it looks like it might actually get in in front of the uh in in front of the uh um you know the government in wisconsin in early part of 2022 and we're hoping that other states and maybe even other provinces can get some value out of that because we will already have a framework set up you know and our farming communities in uh in Wisconsin are not that different to a lot of farming communities in Canada or in Midwest or even beyond that. So, yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's important to realize that producers need to be good stewards of the land. And I think that is important to producers as well, right. And take care of, of this earth. So, so I think those are really great points. And uh, what do you think, what have you learned through the, through the pandemic that helps going forward and helps you, your mindset going forward? Well, I, I think through the pandemic, and maybe, maybe I have a little different point of view on this. I think, despite all the, all the damage and all the, uh, all the people that have passed away because of COVID, and I actually had COVID myself. I, I had no, almost no symptoms, but I went through COVID. Um, I think what COVID, on the positive side, did, is actually make. Uh, the whole of humanity realize that there there are problems that are worldwide, and you know, despite all the problems with uh, politics and governments, etc., we had to deal with it on a global scale, right? Mm-hmm. So we had to come together, and you know, and slowly those voices that are divisive voices, whatever, are going away. It's 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 becoming a little bit more like you know we, we need to deal with this. This is going to stay here, and we need to come up with a solution. So I, I see that, you know, the pandemic might have been one of the, uh, one of the uh, trigger points or uh, for a tipping point for actually finally starting to think about decarbonization, finally thinking about you know making the agriculture, uh, you know, a really a driving force behind the change that we need to see, you know. In, in how we uh, how we treat the land, how we maybe utilize the land to sequester carbon, but also grow really healthy foods, and then mm-hmm. how we affect nutrition, how we maybe even show as an example and educate a lot of people how it could be done, that it doesn't have to be this way, but it could be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I think the pandemic, in a way, uh, made made humanity kind of sit back a little bit and think for for a second. I know that's a really like a, like a really general thing to say, but but you know that's that's my what my feeling is that if without the pandemic we would have been still 
probably doing things more business as usual. But I think mm-hmm. pandemic, especially with climate change and global warming, it actually probably triggered that tipping point because you see that tipping point all over the place right. happening. Yeah, yeah so. I agree for sure. So if people want to continue this conversation, um, where can they find you and where can they find the, the resources that, um, that you're in touch with? Yeah. So, you know, you can find me, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm a principal and a founder of a company called Biomass Solutions on biomasssolution.com. And I'm the contact person. And on the bri.earth, which is biorestorativeideas.earth, and there's a contact page over there uh, too. So, and my, um, you know, my last name is spelled C-H-M-I-E-L-E-W-S-K-I. So I know it's a, it's a mouthful. Yeah, uh, but you can probably find me pretty easily if you just put down my last name by my solution in Wisconsin. I'm I'm all over the place. Great, yeah, and we'll put the links in the in the yeah, show. If you put notes the links, well. that'll be that'll be wonderful. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and I have one one last question for you. What what really fires you up? Um, what were you put on this earth to accomplish? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I what fires me up is I have I have two daughters. And I have family that are younger. You know, my daughter, one is 21 and the other one is going to is 25. And, uh, you know, they have a future. They, I want to have them have a future on this earth and have a earth that's, that's livable. Uh, and that's, you know, a main, um, probably main driver. And I was, you know, blessed in having the ability to become a chemical engineer and travel. And I wanted, you know, really use my, uh, my skill sets to uh, to to maybe show some connections that might have not been obvious to others, mm-hmm. but also constructed in such a way that this is not you know some kind of a, just a dream with no reality. This actually has a lot of returns. This is actually profitable to do this. So I think there's been a misnomer with uh, with the transition to complete renewable world and sustainable restorative world that it's going to cost all kinds of jobs and it's going to cause all kinds of habit. I think that's a huge misnomer. I think it's going to actually generate activity and it's going to be far more interesting and far more inspiring. Right. Right. So, so what does drive me? I, I, I grew up in, you know, a little bit of my time in Japan and there was this expression called Ikigai. Uh, it's a Japanese expression where you can mm-hmm. actually find your, uh, your calling, your, 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 your skill set, and what, what makes a difference and what's profitable and, you know, conf- you know, kind of a combination of all of that in the middle of Ziki Gai. So with this, you know, for me in renewable uh, practices, especially now in restorative practices through biochar and decarbonization, I think I, I'm pretty close to getting my own Ikigai, finding my own Ikigai, which means right. to me, you know, and I get complaints all the time that I work too much. But I pretty much work every day of the week. I tried really hard to have Sunday off uh, lately, but uh, but every other day is it's a lot of work. But I don't really call it work, you know, because because it's what I love doing, right? But it's still work. That's it. Yeah, so, that, I'd say that's the secret to life, right? It's just that is a secret to life. You can find what that. You're doing. And and you know, because if you're doing something you you hate, and somebody pays you for that, it's basically mm-hmm. somebody just. Just giving you some money for you to spend time hating what you do. I mean, what's the point yeah. in that, right? And and if you and and it's not like I'm, I'm not knocking that down because a lot of people find themselves in a lot of different life situations, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, everybody's got their own story, right? Everybody's got you know, everybody's complex. 
But if you can find that, if you can steer your way towards something that's actually more meaningful, I think that's, to me, that's the ultimate. If you can, if you can do that, because, you know, you'll be studying all the time and you'll be, you know, hopefully infecting other people with that as well. Yeah, that's a great message. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Yatsik. It was really great to hear your insight. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for your time and, um, you know, have a wonderful day. Yeah. And thanks to all who are watching or listening. And if you want more information, like I said, the links are provided in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to North American Egg Spotlight YouTube channel, uh, Rumble, and the podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's Egg Spotlight episode, where we put the spotlight on people and companies doing great things for the agricultural industry. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Stitcher, or on your favorite podcasting platform and give us a five-star review. You can also follow us on YouTube and Rumble to see the video version of Ag Spotlight. Also, head on over to NorthAmericanAg.com to subscribe to our Industry Connect update newsletter. If you're interested in advertising opportunities, email us at connect at NorthAmericanAg.com. Thanks for listening. Fastline Auctions, the ultimate destination for online farm equipment auctions. Looking to list equipment? Fastline Auctions knows farmers, and farmers have trusted Fastline for their equipment needs for over 45 years. With unmatched digital reach and direct-to-farmer catalogs, they can find the right buyer for your equipment. Not to mention, they have the industry's lowest commission rates. And if you're looking for equipment to buy, you can bid with confidence. No buyer premiums, no reserves, just integrity. Fastline Auctions, your trusted platform for hassle-free, cost-effective farm equipment auctions. Visit fastline.com for more information. You can join us for a tour of the Fastline Auctions platform July 13th at 6.30 p.m. To register for this webinar, go to northamericanag.com slash fastline hyphen webinar. That's northamericanag.com slash fastline hyphen webinar to register now.